Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 274, recorded September 17th, 2017. So I was looking at the cover dates. We're going back in time exactly seven years ago ah. to finish off Burden of Knowledge miniseries because number four came out in September of 2010. Oh, did it? Okay. Yep. And then we're going back even further in time to Star Trek Year 4, which came out uh, in uh, August, July, and September of 2017. So ah. we're, we're reading them a little out of order, but uh, but uh, they're also kind of old. Okay, cool. And it's interesting seeing uh, the Year 4 ones because it really is Year 4. It's it, it seems like it's taking place either at the same time or after the um, animated series, because you yeah, see Arix and um, Mores. Mores, exactly. I'm thinking that it takes place during, because I think the during. animated series is also year four. Yeah, but okay, so that was on for a full year. It was on two years. So two it's years, four okay. and five. Oh wow, okay. So I guess it has to be. Cool. That's the only way we can make that seven, that five-year uh, thing make sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, that works. That works. So, yeah. So, both of these series are kind of in the same time frame, original series. Um, Burden of Knowledge isn't necessarily given a, a date that I know of, but yeah. uh, I'm assuming it's kind of in the same area. Because is, is Oryx in Burden of Knowledge? He was, wasn't he? I think he so, was. Yeah. So yeah, this is both year four. Okay. Anyways, good stuff. So um, yeah. last week we did one through three, and we had this big, uh, you know, it was like basically three one-offs, mm -hmm. and then come to find out that uh, maybe maybe they were connected, or at least a little connected in that uh, we had a big reveal at the end of issue three where there was an extra Thompson. Exactly. Crewman Thompson. Lieutenant Thompson, Thompson. Is it Lieutenant or Ensign? I'm, I'm, I thought I'm, it was Lieutenant. I think I call him Ensign. Whoops. But anyways, uh, in the first issue of the miniseries, he was severely injured, and he was brought back to life by these aliens. And now, come to find out, maybe there's more than one of him, so is it related to that injury? Exactly. We don't know yet. But we we find don't out know. That, find but we, do, we find out all in this issue. So... All right. Any other housekeeping stuff, Ken? No. All right. Well, then I'll just jump into it. Uh, Burden of Knowledge, again, came out uh, September of 2010. Issue four of it did. Written by Scott and David Tipton. Art by Frederica Manifredi. Ink assist by Nicola Zani. Colors by Andrea Pieroni and Arena Florin. Color assist by... Clara Cenarbro. Letters by Robbie Robbins and edits by Scott Dunbuyer. So from what I can tell, there's two covers. Um, the first cover shows 
Uh, to the left down the page, there is a uh, DNA double helix looking icon. And then kind of floating above that is uh, a couple of images of Gorn. And then to the right of that, uh, we see a full full picture of Kirk and McCoy uh, kind of sticking an iconic pose. Kirk with his phaser and McCoy with a hypo. And then above them, we see a section of the Enterprise. And then the uh, incentive cover is just a black and white sketch version of uh, McCoy, Kirk, and the Enterprise from, from the original cover. It's just, it's missing, obviously, the color, and it's missing the DNA and Gorn images. So the story starts with a haggard-looking Thompson trying to pull some wires out of a wall in the dark trying desperately to contact his crew again. Suddenly, the doors to the room open up and light shines in on the fugitive. Fearing the worst, Thompson is surprised to find that it's his captain and fellow officers. They did hear him, after all, and he is rescued. With that, the man faints from exhaustion and stress. Kirk then beams away and thanks the Orion guards that helped him find the missing crewman. Later in sickbay, Kirk talks to... Thompson that was not the captive, the one that was on the Enterprise the whole time. They talk about where this clone might have come from. McCoy points out that he's not a clone, since he has the exact same memories, scar tissue, and everything else that the real Thompson has. Spock arrives, and the conclusion is, is that he is some sort of transporter duplicate. Kirk orders the ship to return to Mygolis to get some answers. When they arrive to the planet, scans show cloaked buildings that they did not notice before, and they sense human life. Kirk beams down a landing party consisting of McCoy, Spock, and both of the Thompsons. Once in the building, they open up some doors to find rooms filled with stasis pods. One room is completely filled with Klingon warrior, the same Klingon warrior in every single pod along the wall. Another room shows the same Gorn soldier. And then lastly, they find a third room that is filled with Thompsons. The fake Thompson then has a flashback about how he woke up in this very room, and then he was able to escape aboard an Orion craft. He had hoped that this was all just a bad dream. Weiss and the other Mygolians arrive, and they point phasers at the crew. Looks like they're going to have even more DNA to choose from for their clone army. Kirk then happens to flip a switch while he's raising his hand that releases all of the clones. The Gorn and the Klingons fight each other and also the Mygolians, while all the Thompsons just look up at their captain for answers. Kirk orders all Starfleet officers to be beamed back up to the Enterprise, including 201 versions of Thompson. Later, the main trio of Trek players discuss what will happen to the extra Thompsons, and they speculate how the future will be with 200 extra Thompsons in it. The end. 200 Thompsons? Wow. Plus the original, so it's 201. Well, okay. I'm glad you mentioned that. So where's the original, by the way? Because at first... The, the at the end of the previous issue and the beginning of this one, 
before Thompson tells his story, I was thinking, oh, this is the this is the real Thompson. Uh, he's got injuries. He's still got the injuries from the original attack that have not healed, not all the way, and that's why he's got problems um, mm-hmm. when they find him. But when he tells a story, he sounds like he's one of the clones that is, you know, in the stasis thing, right. and and just gets out of there. So it's like, well, wait a minute. I mean, did they take the original Thompson and put him in stasis? Or is that guy just another clone? And if he is another clone, and we know the guy that was on the Enterprise is a clone, or not, um, transporter clone, I should say. So what, where's the original? I mean, I know they can't tell, but there's, did they, did they lose the original? Did he die? Well, they never say. I mean, you just got to no, assume don't. that the the one that was on the Enterprise is the original. But but I'm with you. I, I well, but I he can't be the original, right? Because well, because he was all healed. He was. There were no injuries. Well, see, that's just it. How how can if they're just doing a transporter clone? Yeah. Then even if they transported, if even if they made a clone of him, that clone would also have all the same injuries that the injured one. Ooh. Had. That's an excellent point, Donovan. So it can't he can't be a transporter clone of him mm. in that state. That's an interesting point. Since it is a hundred percent duplication, it should be duplicated with the injuries also. Right. Huh. Right. So that that, that was another part that I was like, man, I wish they wow, would have. Wow, this makes even less sense. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the more you think about it, the more this storyline does not make sense. Right. Okay. Also, what's what? Okay, so now we know what happens to the two hundred Thompsons. What happened to the two hundred Klingons? The two hundred Gorns? Well, they were allowed to just fight it out okay. to the last one, just okay. kill each other. Well, okay, but really unlikely they're gonna they're gonna right. they're gonna fight until they all kill each other. Not know? only do they kill each other, they kill all the my Mygolians. Nah. Because <laughs> well, Kirk just leaves. I know. It's like it's like what. They, they, Exactly. There's like no thought to that. It's like, oh, it's time to end up this episode, <laughs> this week's episode. Bye, everybody. It's like, yeah. but, but what? But what about all those Klingons? And, and what about these guys? These guys are manufacturing um, members or human life forms, or not, not only human but alien life forms, right. and they're just manufacturing them. I mean, are you going to do anything about those guys? Right, and they didn't even say what they were doing them, use doing it for. Exactly, right? there's no I, explanation. I assumed it was some sort of slave labor or something like that, you know, because you know there was that whole backroom talk with the the penguin guy uh, in issue number one, where obviously the the Mongolian said something to the penguin guy to get him to uh, you know resolve their tiff, their their little tiff. Yeah, uh-huh. so but nope. No, no explanation on that. No explanation on why the Bagolians needed uh, two hundred Thompson. Yeah. Now, if all they were trying to do is impress the Federation for membership, they don't need two hundred of them. They just need one. Right. And then you need a Thompson, or you need a human. What do you need all the? What do you need Klingons and uh, Gorns for? Right. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't not not to get into the federation. So, right. and why do these guys even want to get into the federation? They seem to have pretty awesome technology. I mean, obviously they have no morals either, 
or right. else they wouldn't have tried to go down the path of developing uh, transporter technology that would duplicate people. Right. Yeah, and, you know, obviously they perfected the the transporter duplication because all these Thompsons seem to be normal and not yeah. one's evil and one's good. That that would have been better if everybody was split off into <laughs> good, good Thompson, bad Thompson, scared Thompson. <laughs> Uh, of course, referring to uh, first season Taw's episode where Kirk split. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, anyways, I, I liked the idea um, because, you know, there's always that whole moral. There's always something, li- like you like to point out, there's always that moral squishy ground when it comes to transporters or exactly what transporters are doing in the mm-hmm. first place. Right. Whether they're truly beaming your your own molecules down to the planet or whether you just being recreated somewhere else and your original version is destroyed. Yes. Which of course is, that's what I think. And you think the former. Right. I and from a, from a moral standpoint, the former is a much cleaner explanation. Right. Yeah. Right. Otherwise, otherwise, that's horrible. <laughs> Uh, yeah yeah it is horrible but but my version doesn't really explain you know how a transporter accident can happen so if if they're truly only sending your own molecules to another place mm-hmm. then then how can there be a, a surplus of those exact same molecules to make a thomas Riker or an evil kirk yeah so uh yeah Yep. But anyway. but anyways, I I I liked. I, I wish they would have delved more into that, you know, in the story. And I wish they would have, you know, I wish because even the even the quote unquote real Thompson, he's like, hey, uh, I just I just want you to remember, I'm I'm the real one. And I kept waiting for that shoe to drop to find out that. But he's oh, probably no, not the not. real one. <laughs> right. You, you're just another clone. The real Thompson died of his injuries, and then yeah, that's what got be. me thinking. Well, he can't be a clone of that Thompson because that Thompson would have had the. Injuries. Exactly. Very oh. good. Yes, yeah, very good. So the whole thing doesn't make any sense. Perfect. <laughs> so maybe they have one of those little rays that speeds up time like they had in um, the Orville. Nah. Star, Trek, Star Trek Orville. That's uh-huh. canon, right? Uh, canon for the Orville. <laughs> Which is not the same thing. That's not the Federation. Right. Although it sure looks like it, doesn't it? Man, that, sh- that I loved that show. You I, loved I, it. I, I loved the the look of it. Yes, I love the, the look of it. Of it. Uh, I'm waiting for more episodes to to really hook me on, you know, the comedy aspect of it because I think the trailers gave away too much of the first couple episodes. But yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm hopeful. Yeah, um, I enjoyed it, but um, I think they've. They they need some tuning up to do. Because the look is wonderful. That All that stuff should stay just the way it is. I like the look of the Orville, the ship itself. Um, but the storytelling... And the storytelling is very true to, um, to, to Star Trek. You've referred to it as a typical uh, next-gen episode. And yes, yes. But there's just something a little off about it. Where at the end I was thinking... That's good, but uh, it just seems to be something missing here, or something a little not right. Um, 
anyway, I think as they make these, hopefully they'll be tuning out whatever I'm not liking. And my wife, oh, she just thought it was awful. <laughs> she's, oh, really? She's never going to watch good. it again. And uh, it was like, oh, I do not have that reaction at all. But I, I, it, this definitely could be better. Well, does she like the kind of adult humor kind of thing that, uh, like in Family Guy and things like that? Oh, yeah. We, we love Family Guy. Okay. Although we're a little sick of it. Right. That was, that was the one thing that, that is taking me a little to get used to is, is, you know, I I unfortunately watched it with the kids. I won't probably let them watch the rest of them, uh, until they're a little older because it was a little raunchy at times. But, uh, but I mean, I don't know. It, hopefully, it won't take a whole season like like Next Generation took a whole season to kind of get their f- feet on the ground. Right. Uh, yep. So hopefully, I, I'm willing to give them you know as much time as they need to get it work. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but will Fox? Yeah. Right. Well, how did it do waiting ratings wise? I have no idea. Yeah, me either. I have no idea, but um, it's really yeah. That's just an indication. The original Battlestar Galactic did. Galactica did great in ratings, and then it started to fall off precipitously as time went on. So initial ratings don't – they're not always the best indicator, but at least they're an indicator of whether people were tuning in in the first place. Right. Yeah, which we won't get that for Star Trek Discovery because it will only have that initial ratings, and then the rest will all just be streaming data. Right, which – yeah, I don't know how I don't know how they do that that kind of Nielsen thing right. uh, with streaming, but I'm sure there's some way of measuring that. Of course, there has to be. Yeah, right. the number of yeah from a technology standpoint, you know, it's a point to point streaming, so you definitely should be able to keep track of that. Right. Hmm. We'll see. Yes. But no, let's ha- just, having... it's, been, it's been a good month for Star Trek. Oh, it's been a great Star month. Trek spinoff type stuff. Exactly, and we and. What a great new season of 2017 TV season. We got two Star Trekian TV series, so wonderful. Right. Wonderful. I just hope that they're both wonderful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be okay. honest, I'm really looking forward to Discovery. I, I'm, I'm digging the look. I, I like the purple Klingons for some reason. Oh, you do? I do. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, they're different colors, right? They're not all purple. Right, right. Yeah. But the main one, he seems to be dark black or purple right yeah okay yeah i I just have to see how they're how they're doing stuff but i i was i was taken a little aback by the look on the first stills i saw but hey whatever just something to get used to well if you look at it every every movie of star trek the klingons have a different type of look right so maybe not maybe not as drastic as this this is yeah this is drastically different but uh, I don't know. We'll see it. Yeah. In a couple of weeks, I'll let you know what I think. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Okay. All right. What so, else you got about this one? Um, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't have anything else. I mean, it, I think the main things we already said. You know, what happened to the Klingons? What happened to the Gorns? You know, uh, and and a lot of things just didn't add up as far as uh, this. Transporter cloning, so. Right. I did uh, like seeing the Gorn. I thought they were drawn well. Oh, they were drawn really well. Yeah, I like that. Especially when they cut that one where they have them coming out of the door. 
into right. the hallway, they look really threatening, really nasty. Not like a guy in a rubber suit. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the big hiss. You know, I just noticed that they have a bunch of Andorians, too. Oh, where'd you see that? Yeah, so if uh, the page after the hissing page that you're yeah. talking about, yeah. you can see another door opening and you see 200 uh, Andorians coming out. And they're wearing uh, orange jumpsuits. Oh, right. I didn't notice that the first time. Oh, I was my gosh. That. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, okay, so how many different races are in this this menagerie? I don't right. mm. Okay, so Okay, so even more so. We're not talking only Klingons and Gorns. We could be talking about three, Orion. four, five, six, right. seven different sets of races. These people are being cloned and and kept against their will. Right. For purposes we are never told. Ugh. Is it slave labor? Is it uh, you know, organ harvesting? You know, because they kind of acted like maybe they were cloning them to for their medical purposes, but it's never actually said. Yeah, and I don't see how having a whole bunch of Thompsons is going to be able to cure me of phaser burns or whatever it was that uh, you know, unless I'm Thompson and I can take those organs and replacement parts, uh, it doesn't help me very much. Yeah, you know, being a non-Thompson. Yeah. Too many questions unanswered. Too many questions, and they're just flying off to the next episode. Uh, right. I'm not crazy about that. And unfortunately, I think we see similar kinds of things going on in the uh, year four episodes, too. Stories. Right. Yeah, it would be cool if they did a one-off uh, next generation where you know you have 200 old Thompsons in the future. Ah! They're all <laughs> vying for the same jobs and things like that. Ah. Uh... I mean, because, you know, imagine having 200 of you in the same workforce. And exactly. Well, they're all the going to have positions. They're going to all have to have different first names, right? All right. It's true. There could only be. Like Thomas and Will. Right, right. You got you got a lot more names to figure out, but there you go. That's true. All right. Shall we move on to year four? Let's do that. Okay, so year four, was there six issues? Seven issues? Six issues, right? Six issues, yeah. Okay. So this is the first one. And, of course, these stories take place in year four of Taz, which is cool. Uh, and we do see a lot of uh, characters, a few characters, even from the uh, cartoon series of Star Trek. So kind of cool. Okay, this first one was published July of 20, uh, 2007. And the writer is David Tishman. Steve Conley does the art. Colors by Leonard O'Grady. Letterer Robbie Robbins. Editor Dan Taylor. Okay, so we have three covers. Uh, the first one is apparently meant to be kind of like a retro gold key, have a gold key kind of retro feel to it. At least that's what the description says that I read about it. The Enterprise uh, shows the Enterprise cutting across from the lower left to the upper right, a little diagonal uh, breakage of the uh, splitting the uh, cover into two halves. Uh, in the upper left-hand quadrant, we see that uh, uh, Kirk is there with a phaser in hand, and he's looking a bit more beefy and square-jawed than uh, normal, very heroic. 
In the lower uh, bottom, we have uh, Ahura, Scotty, Chekhov, and Sulu. And they are all on the bridge and crammed into the right center of the cover. And then at the very bottom, we have Spock and Dr. McCoy um, that look like they're very busy doing things. The cover's by Joe Caroni. Cover B features the top four characters in all of Taws, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and the Enterprise. The humans are all holding gadgets. McCoy has his trusty hypo. Spock his illuminating sciences tricorder, and Kirk is holding his phaser type 2 at the ready. The Enterprise is blasting forward from a glowing Starfleet swoosh. The retailer incentive cover presents the uh, same cover as cover B, but this version is all black and white. And uh, they're all by Joe Caroni. Busy man. While cruising the wilds of the Alpha Quadrant, the good ship Enterprise and crew come upon a large mass dead ahead. Spock reports it's made up of 46 planets and moons in a synchronous orbit. An orbit around what? While continuously drinking from a blue cup, Captain Kirk orders a closer look at the system. As they pass close by, they can see the planets are linked together by what appears to be beams of light, that together with the planets make up a structure that looks reminiscent of a double helix. Kirk's log reports almost all of these planets have high levels of radiation and toxic pollutants. Climactic devastation has come to all of these worlds and made them uninhabitable, save one. Spock reports scans pick up only 20 life forms on that single habitable world, So only 20 life forms that Spock says with this many planets, they should be able to support more like 800 billion inhabitants simultaneously. Kirk assembles a landing party to investigate the last planet standing. Not long after they beam down to an open patio on a tall building in a forest of skyscrapers, they are accosted by a middle-aged humanoid who knows Kirk's name and rank. He welcomes them to the Strand and introduces himself as Othello Beck. McCoy recognizes the name as one of the greatest medical minds of their time. Kirk posts their lone red shirt at the entrance while the rest of them enter the building. Kirk asks why Dr. Beck referred to the place as the Strand. Beck explains the planetary collective was created by a technologically advanced race a thousand years ago that was unfortunately socially aggressive. They destroyed themselves, but left something behind. Dr. Beck calls it the greatest laboratory in the galaxy, but before he explains further, he introduces the beautiful, white-haired, human-looking woman with a big horn growing out of her head named Una. Dr. Beck says of all the Benai he has created, she is his favorite. As he says that, the lone redshirt is attacked by a werewolf-looking creature that slices open the security man's throat. Kirk hears the scream, and they all run to his aid. Kirk shoots the werewolf, and McCoy does his moneymaker line. He's dead, Jim. Dr. Beck says he tried to suppress the predatory genes, but... Kirk angrily says that won't bring back his crewmen, damn it. 
but his mood shifts quickly after Scotty is instructed to bring Spock and Alonzo, the red shirt, back up to the ship, and the lovely Una offers to show him to his quarters. If you know what I mean. Meanwhile, Dr. McCoy and Dr. Beck are working together in a lab. Beck explains how he, be, how he came to be on the Strand by way of Bajor. Beck makes it very clear to McCoy that he will not be sharing any of the Strand's secrets with the Federation until he is good and ready. He states serums he has already developed from what he has learned for Sun Plague and Centauri Shingles. Then he turns the conversation to ask about the Enterprise. Meanwhile, back on the ship, Spock is researching Dr. Beck and not liking what he is seeing. Early in his career, he was the recipient of the Phlox Prize for medicine, but more recently he has made questionable, even illegal decisions in his quest for the next big medical cure, a cure for Logan's disease. Meanwhile, Kirk is getting out of bed and putting his boots on. Why was his boots off? The other side of the bed is empty, but appears that it might have been recently occupied. Kirk takes a late-night stroll and spots two lab workers talking about work with a very testy Dr. Beck. Kirk enters the room they came out of and finds paperwork concerning Logan's disease. He also finds a pale and sickly Vulcan woman in a fancy medical bed. She asks Kirk to kill her. Apparently, she's in quite a lot of pain. Before he can reply, he is hit over the head with a desk statue by Una. Back in the lab, Beck and McCoy are working. A lab worker accidentally breaks a beaker containing blue liquid. Beck angrily tells the worker he has ruined three months' worth of work. He pulls a pistol and shoots the worker. As McCoy is trying to help the cadaver, Beck says not to meddle in his affairs. It won't be good for your health. Back on the Enterprise, the red alert is sounded. Nuclear missiles have been launched from several of the planets directly at the ship. Sulu and Arix take evasive maneuvers on Spock's orders and fire phasers. The threat neutralized for now, Spock orders a course away from the Strand. He thinks the captain and the doctor are still alive, but best to plan the counterattack from a safe distance. Back on the Strand, Kirk and McCoy find themselves in a cell, with their equipment out of reach on a desk on the other side of a locked door. Kirk pulls a Phaser 1 from his boot and blasts the door open. After they retrieve their equipment, they are off. They enter a room that reeks of death. In it, all the Benai are dead, with smoking holes in their chests. Finally, he finds Una and Dr. Beck, likewise with smoking holes in their chests. Everyone's dead. A mysterious voiceover, he says he had tried to save his wife's life for so long. Apparently, he has failed. Una is angry. The Benai are angry. The Benai have fired upon the Enterprise. This all must end. All of it! Kirk and Spock beam back to the ship. Later, as they depart the Strand... They sum things up around the con, saying that Dr. Beck tried and failed to reverse the effects of his wife's Logan's disease. It drove him mad and sentenced her to years of unbearable pain. 
Starfleet has begun its investigation of the Strand's databanks. Some good may come out of Beck's discoveries yet. The end. So he killed himself, or he killed Una, and Una killed him at the same time? Good question. Talk about a rushed ending. It's like it's like they, they set this thing up as they began writing it as a two-issue story. And then they said, uh, yeah, cut the second issue. So let's just end it quick. Yeah, come on. Ideas. Ideas. Somebody? And they, they come up with this. Yeah. I wasn't the biggest fan of this part. Uh-uh. I, I think right up until now, I was kind of liking the book. Um, but the ending absolutely was terrible. Right. Yeah, I was very, very disappointed. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, a couple things. They're, they're going back and using um, Taw's tropes a bit too heavily for my, my liking, but fine, whatever. Um, like, they got the thing. Okay, so there's got to be a hottie, and Kirk has to batter. And they're insinuating that's what happened. And I just think – I think making Kirk a uh, a trope, a, a James Bond that's always got to, you know, do the nearest hottie, uh, right. I, I, I always hated that. I just didn't think that was necessary at all. I mean if you got a real relationship with somebody like Edith Keeler, fine. But Carol this – Carol Marcus, fine. But you got to have this, you know, hottie of the week and doggone it. Kirk's got a nailer. Mm, oh, I hate that. Right. And we'll see that in the next issue too, but – although it, did, it didn't go as far. Right. Yeah, so um... – yeah, so I was really confused on the ending. Didn't didn't know who killed who or what. Because, I mean, there's a lot of people dead in that end. And, oh, yeah. And so I'm like, he killed everybody and then killed himself? Or he saved Una for last and then let her kill him? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but I think the voiceover, which obviously was Dr. Beck, but where does it come from? I mean, I mean, was that a recording? Or he was dead already. So it wasn't him speaking real time because he was dead on the ground. Right. So, or was that like the magical third person narrator talking? And if that is the magical narrator talking to let the audience know, then how did everybody else know? I mean, right. so did, did he record a last, you know, a, a suicide note? Is that what that was? An audio suicide note? It's just not clear. But even that, what happened to the, I mean, the wife, did she die? Oh, yeah, they said that. Oh, okay, okay. Which is another convenient thing. I mean, look at how many years she was living with the Logan's disease, and she just so happened to die then? Or or was it... Or the it, Una killer. Exactly, because he did say in his voiceover something about Una being pissed. Right. Mm. She she knocks out Kirk, and then maybe she didn't know that the wife was there all this time. And he... Which seems unlikely. But... Right. Yeah, so... I just wish that was a little clearer. I mean, yeah. I thought I thought maybe I was just slow and I didn't I didn't pick up uh, on on whatever it was trying to tell me. But it sounds like you're kind of in the same boat. Oh no, yeah. 
it just seems like it's like it's a story that's kind of thrown together. I mean, quite frankly, when I was first starting to read it, I was thinking, wow, Dr. Beck reminds me a lot of Dr. Morbius um, from uh, Forbidden Planet, you know, the classic Leslie yeah. Nielsen movie. And, um, and then I started thinking more, it's like, wow, this whole thing is kind of like a retread of Forbidden Planet. Um, so in Forbidden ba- Planet 2, there was Dr. Morbius instead of Dr. Beck who found a planet that was lo- loaded with alien uh, advanced technology. Um, and he, w- he didn't want to share it with, uh, with, with the United Planets. So United Planets in that movie, not, not the United Federation of Planets. Um, and he found technology and used technology that was there. Uh, and ultimately, he ends up dying. And oh, by the way, he's got a, a hottie daughter uh, in, uh, in Forbidden Planet. Uh, who, of course, Commander Adams, the Leslie Nielsen character, ends up taking a liking to. Now, they didn't do anything in the movie, but you know that's what's going to happen you know, in the future. Right. Anyway, in the end, everything is destroyed, and, um, and, and, the, and the daughter goes off with uh, the, the space-faring uh, commander in his, his ship. That's amazingly like the Enterprise. Anyway, the whole thing just seems like very much a retread to me. Yeah, I, I didn't think of that because I, I don't, I haven't watched uh, Forbidden Planet enough, obviously. Um, but, classic, uh, but... classic. <laughs> That's what I keep hearing. What you keep hearing? So you've never seen it? I've seen it. Okay. I just, uh, I don't remember it all that well. Okay. Well. Awesome movie. I mean, it has Robbie awesome. the Robot, right? Heck yeah. Robbie's there. Okay, so there's no Robbie here. But what's but the deal with the Banai? We get Una. And we get Una, Una and the Banai. So yeah. Well, so tell like, me, who, wh- what are the Banai anyway? They're somehow, I don't know, DNA spliced people? I don't know, because there's like the werewolf, there's a porcupine guy, there's yeah. uh a rac- is it raccoon? I don't know what. Um, one of the guys who's talking uh, that Kirk follows doesn't yeah. he kind of look like some kind of a uh, rodent guy of some sort? Yeah, yeah, like a little, yeah, a little chipmunk or something. <laughs> yeah, but full full sized, right, right, right. Still, and then there's the guy that was the uh, the one that was helping him in the lab that got shot in the chest. He kind of looks like a minion. Oh, he does kind of look like that, doesn't he? Minion head. He's got kind of like a a capsule-shaped head. (laughs) Right. It's a minion head on a a full-size body. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know who they are. And and he created them all, so he accelerated their growth because he doesn't seem like he's been gone for 20 years or 30 years, however Mm -hmm. old these people are. Yeah. But, yeah. But, yeah, his favorite is the unicorn girl. Yeah. And she's pretty cute, but it's like, where these people come from? I mean, it. He, he actually comes out and says, "She's my favorite." Did he actually say favorite creation? Right. Yeah. Um. Wow. Okay. So you're manufacturing people, but your big thing is you're trying to find find cures for illnesses. 
but you're able to manufacture people. That seems like a lot more advanced than figuring out cures for illnesses. I don't know. Right. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but it just seems odd. It seemed odd. Yeah. So how'd you like uh, the Dr. Flox prize? I loved it. I loved it. So obviously, although they don't say it for sure, that sounds like the NXO1's original chief medic, right? Yep, yep. There you go. I, thought, I liked it a lot. What I didn't like, Ken, is this whole <laughs> DNA planet string thing. Oh, at the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see it a couple of times. but So, yeah, it's it's a whole bunch of planets connected as if they were a DNA helix. Exactly, right. And these are supposedly full-size planets. Some of them look like gas giants like Saturn and Jupiter and stuff, and yep. others look smaller. But you assume that they're real planets. Yet, I mean, to scale, it doesn't make any sense because the Enterprise seems to be as big as some of the planets. So I was... Oh, well... I was really confused if they were supposed to be full-size planets or they're supposed to be like asteroid-sized planets that that no. have somehow resembled what a real planet would look like, but no. the size of of a smaller planet. But I think they're supposed to be full-size planets. Yeah, they're supposed to be full-size planets. Uh, Spock talks about if they weren't all ruined planets, most of them, then they'd be able to support 100 billion people or something. 800 so, billion people. 800 billion? Okay, fine. So, um, obviously, these are full-size planets. But but how do they travel around their sun? Exactly. All connected like that. Exactly. Pulling on each other through gravity. It makes no sense. Stuff. Yeah. It, From a scientific it, standpoint. And are those like lasers that are holding them together? Because they look like red and, and purple – or not purple, but maybe uh, bright red. Pink. Pink. Yeah, pink. Uh, uh, like laser beams that are somehow holding them in this form and and why make that form it's like and where's the sun i mean you guys got to travel around some star right for heat and warmth and everything heat heat and light yeah i don't know way too many questions um i I don't understand why the uh they went that route as far as how to depict this alien this uh this planetary body yeah yeah and they're so close to each other it's just like man if if this was real, they would all be crushed into one one giant planet by now because yeah. they would all pull each other in. in. Yeah, I, I, I was really confused. Yeah, well, trying to represent what they're talking about. And, and, and if you're that advanced and stuff, why do you feel compelled to pull all these planets together? I mean, maybe they never developed faster than the light travel. So they just just go to another star system. I mean, why are you pulling all these planets in? Oh, you're getting you you. They said they pulled the planets in. Well, look at them. How, how else could you have all these planets together? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it never says. Well, no, it doesn't say. There's all kinds of things it doesn't say. It's just no normally, no normal solar system is going to have that many planets. Right. Yeah, so at first I was going to just chalk it up to, okay, they're going to explain it somehow, and, you know, this is on par with a giant amoeba or something <laughs> that's kind of silly, but was in was, is part of Trek lore, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I was letting it go at first, but then the fact that they never addressed it, and, you know, their dialogue says one thing. So if you just read the bubbles... You would assume that this is a normal star system that has a whole bunch of planets that could 
have life, but don't. But yeah, then you been look ruined. at but then you look at the visuals and you're like, why does it look like a DNA? Why are they so small? Why why so many questions? Yeah, I think the I think the artist might have just said, how am I supposed to draw this? It's like, uh, well, double helix looks pretty cool. Okay, <laughs> let's try that. Yeah, we're talking about DNA sequencing and making werewolf people. So hey, yeah, this could be like a foreshadowing kind of thing. <laughs> All right, and then uh, lastly, the the art style for the whole book. Yeah, um, I liked it. They they chose to do four panels for the most part. Every page has four panels, right, mm-hmm. on top of each other, kind of in a widescreen TV format. Yeah. So they're really pushing home that this is quote unquote year four, and this is what you would see. This is a still from that episode. Yeah. And uh, I kind of liked it. I thought it was a kind of an interesting choice. Yeah. What'd you so think? the so the artwork itself, though, um, how you know, in some scenes, like there's a there's a shot of Beck where he looks reasonably detailed. Um. So a, a decent drawing, but then many many times uh, when people are a little further away, there's like really light on detail and faces, uh-huh. um, and just kind of like the overall look. Just in many panels, just make me think of a very simplistic kind of art style. Uh, it's a, it's a very straightforward card cartoon looking. Album. Yeah, which again but, kind of fits into could this have happened during animated series yeah maybe maybe they're trying to look a little bit more look a little bit more like the animated series i don't know but there's other spots other panels where the artwork is pretty cool like when the uh the werewolf is destroyed that looks pretty cool and then the the phaser beam it isn't all just one or two colors it's you know it's almost like shooting a beam of fire out of the phaser which looks cool uh rather inconsistent with how phasers normally work but um Looks cool. Right. But, you know, then, like I mentioned, uh, Kirk looks a little off in the face. I mean, you can tell it's Shatner, but somehow I some kind, somehow idealized. Um, yeah, see, I didn't think that he looked like Shatner. I, I, I thought that he looked more generic. They all kind of like well, you I, I tell who they that. are, but they don't look like the actors. Yeah, I, Except I agree. Rx. Rx looks exactly like the actor. Yeah, and Mres, although you only see her from a distance, right? You know, she looks like she did in the comic, uh, TV series. Yeah, pretty good. Although you know, uh, and then we'll get into the last one uh, or the second issue next, and and my overall feel is. They're kind of emphasizing some things that they don't need to emphasize and carry forward from the from some episodes, Taw's episodes. But they just seem to have a very simplistic kind of like, let's not think about this too much. Let's do an adventure. Right. Kind of story. Which is kind of the model for Star Trek, the original series? Uh, not not as much as these two first two issues, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, although yes, you're right. In some cases, they when the when the 40 minutes were up, uh, 45, 48, whatever minutes were up. Uh, sometimes they did kind of leave situations that seemed like not very well tied up. 
But these things, oh my god. Right. Yeah, no. I definitely need more explanation on, on, on a lot of these. Yeah. But what did you think about the, the four panel per page? Did that throw you off? or No, it didn't throw me off at all. Yeah, I kind of no, like the, yeah. the idea of it being a... Yeah, I, I really didn't see it as being, hey, here's an episode, and these are just frames from the original uh, film. But uh, yeah, that's a good point. I didn't yeah, see that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what they're going for. Right. Because it... Because it kind of felt like those old uh, photo novels, you know, where it would mm. just be a couple panels and it was just pictures from the picture from, right. the, from the movie. Right. Anyways, I liked it. I, I liked it. Uh, I liked the art style for the most part. Yeah. That is all, all I right. have to say. All right. Then let's move on to issue number two of the year four series, which came out August of 2007. Uh, all the art and writing staff is the same. As issue number one, so the uh, there's three covers that I can see. Uh, the first cover is by Steve Conley, and it's kind of the comic booky looking cover. Uh, like Ken said, maybe maybe a gold key type feel. Um, it shows the Enterprise kind of swooshing uh, from from the bottom left or the bottom right to the top left, and then above the swoosh we see um, Spock and McCoy. And then below that, we see Kirk. Looks like he's standing on ice crystals or something. And then behind him, we see some uh, aliens or, or humanoid-looking aliens uh, dressed up in some warm furs. The second cover shows uh, it's more of a traditional painting. Um, it actually is by Joe Corney. And it just shows Chekhov pointing, Sulu with a gun, Scotty, and then the Enterprise. And then finally, the uh, the third cover is the photo cover, and it shows Shatner in his uh, gold tunic. I guess we're supposed to believe that this is what Shatner would look like in year four, but it looks more like a year three type Shatner. Maybe even year two or one. All right, so the story starts with the Enterprise uh, making a stop at Arik 3 to get some dilithium. Uh, the ruler of the planet has a banquet for McCoy, Spock, and Kirk, while a woman alien is helping Scotty install the dilithium onto the ship. During the banquet, some traditionalists, um, I guess there's some radicals there on the planet, uh, they uh, do not like that the uh, Federation is now part of the planet's politics, I guess. They want to go back to their traditional ways. So they've uh, rushed the banquet, and they're threatening to blow everybody up. And in fact, they do drop a grenade that will destroy the palace, but Spock is able to pick it up, throw it to McCoy, and then McCoy is able to throw it you know, maybe 100 feet over the palace, which then it detonates and doesn't damage any of the buildings. Good throw, McCoy. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, Scotty and the woman are really hitting it off. She seems to love dilithium almost as much as he does. So a lot of flirting is ensuing. Later, we get several pages of McCoy, Spock, and Kirk talking about the Prime Directive. Uh, that perhaps they shouldn't be getting fuel from a planet that has a split culture and does not... Uh, maybe the Federation being there is causing more harm than good to the, uh, the total population. 
Later, Kirk talks to the captured aliens and asks why the traditionalists would attack while the Federation is there if their goal was to try to get the Federation to stop coming to the planet. Instead of getting an answer, we learn that the guards that are holding the traditionalists are actually on his side. And so they turn the table, release the prisoner, and capture Kirk instead. Meanwhile on the Enterprise, Scotty is so taken with this young woman that he does not notice that uh, one of the diagnostics is turning red for danger. Meanwhile, in the ice caves underneath the palace, the alien is setting up a bomb when Kirk tries to make a break for it. He's able to... Kirk is able to subdue the alien, but the bomb does go off, which assumes either kills Kirk's or traps them under the ice. Meanwhile, in the palace, McCoy and Spock sneak around the dark, when suddenly the skies above flash white. The planet's ruler then arrives with a phaser, telling him that they just blew up the Enterprise. Kirk then arrives and a fight ensues which leaves the aliens on the ground. Scotty then arrives and asks in person if everyone is ready to be beamed back up to the ship. He laughs at the alien's surprise and says that he would never be distracted enough by a pretty face to not notice something wrong with his ship. The four then return to the ship. The end. What'd Why? You think of that well, that's <laughs> okay. And and what do they say about why it's fine for them just to leave? Because because you, what you had was a situation where, hey, it's not you know the Federation being here is causing problems. Uh, we want the dilithium, but there's a moral problem here because now there's a split faction, and these people are are, are violent. They're violently pursuing something they wouldn't be if the Federation wasn't there. And, hey, if we are not here, then the Klingons will probably come. And all that kind of stuff is raised up. It's a very messy situation. And in the end, Kirk feels fine with just leaving. And why does he feel fine with just leaving? Because uh, the dilithium has been shut off, so they have no reason to be there anymore. Uh, the main mine. The explosion of the main mine. And... Now that's closed things off, and now he's going to just let them fight it out internally. Right. I have no vested interest in here in you anymore. Well, okay. Yeah, so that's weak. <laughs> yeah. That's full of that's – B, that's a BS ending. It, it, things aren't resolved at all. I mean, how much does it take to open up a mine again? And he said the main mine, insinuating there are other mines, which of course makes perfect sense. Why would you have one mine? You know, it's probably all over the planet. Um, anyway, the, the whole thing, it's just another rushed ending. Uh, and leaving <laughs> this planet in disarray. Right. Really. Yeah, no, it was it was not good. No. Um, and by the way, what... Okay, the idea that the rebels want to take Kirk and blow him up. The idea that they want to blow up the mine so they can close it off makes perfect sense. Fine. Um, but why did you grab Kirk to blow up with the mine? Um, to send a message to the Federation? 
I'm not 100% sure, but at least that's one. Okay, that's one thing. But the people in charge, the guy who's uh, the, the horn la- or the, the, the lady who, again, has white hair uh, and is a hottie. Um, she's not a unicorn, though. She's not a horn. There's no horn. She's not a unicorn. But um, she and the other guy who's in charge. Right. It's like, why did they try to blow up the Enterprise? I mean, because right. they did that. They seemed like they were in on it too. What? That it didn't make any sense that they were that. So is there really two factions, or is there is really it all one? one? And that they're okay, making face that you know, or saving face that oh, we're we're siding with the Federation, but in reality, we're we're not. Yeah, it didn't make sense. But why be confused. why be duplicitous about it? Why don't you just say you know what? <clears throat> We kind of want want to go back to living on uh, on a permanently frozen planet and living in uh, in snowy areas, basically being like an Eskimo or something. We want to go back to that and keep our dilithium. Why don't you guys go? At least you know. Ultimately, the Federation good guys. You know, I doubt if they really would do that in like a real situation, but theoretically they would. Right. Uh, so why are you killing people? Why are you blowing things up? Uh, makes no sense. I was equally confused, kid. Yeah. Another thing, um, both of these issues, uh, especially this one, Kirk is quite the two-fisted phaser-heavy guy, right? I mean, at the beginning, when the attempt is made to blow up the Imperial you know, palace area, at least the reception room they're in. Um, it's like the rebels come in in fur coats and Kirk's around the corner ready for action. And he's got the, he's got the hot chick next to him. And, you know, he's going to get her later, but, you know, he's going to show how cool he is. And then, you know, of course, between he and McCoy and Scotty, and what an arms McCoy has. Should have been a baseball player. Um He's going to go in there and, and be the hero. Right. It just seemed a little like heavy-handed, stereotypical, you know. And yeah, sometimes Kirk was like that in, in, in the original Taws episodes, No Two Ways About It. It's just I, just, I just really dislike that. Right. And how he disarmed the, or how he got the, uh, the guy to drop the bomb is that he pushes a, a stone pillar. That's- yeah. A support pillar within the building. Somehow he's able to hit it hard enough to dislodge this pillar and hit but, the hit the guy. But and there he drops the bomb. But I just want to mention there doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to be attached to the ceiling. Is it not? I, I then what's it attached to? Should I don't know. Oh no, it's, it's just, like decorative or something. No, it looks like it is. Look, if you look at the first page, it looks like it connects up to the ceiling. Uh, uh, okay, let me look. The ceiling kind of dips down into the pillar. I I didn't think that, but I'll tell you one thing: if he's able to knock over a a a pillar as opposed to like just a statue, a a pillar that's holding up the ceiling, right? Ooh, Miss Senior Kirk, you are muy muy macho. There's no way. It's got to be like a statue or something, a freestanding statue. I don't know. know. Well, if you look at the ceiling, it does dip down right at each one of the pillars, so. It looks like they're connected, but maybe, maybe they're not. I don't know. But well, why, I don't really, I don't really yeah. see this. I don't really see the ceiling in any of these panels. Go to the first page, the the very first page when 
it's the captain's log. Oh, there. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah, but okay, it's got a del- it has a dilithium crystal at the very top of it. Well, yeah. So there's but... a di- so it's the pillar, and then at the top of it there's a, there's actually a couple dilithium crystals that almost look like a, like a flower or something. Or a crown or something, yeah. Or or maybe a xenomorph uh, egg casing, and then um, and then above it is the ceiling. But uh, I don't know that they're really touching. They might be. Ah, eh, whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't know. Then why is the ceiling dipping down like that? I don't know. Art Stru- structurally, I don't see how the ceiling would stay afloat like that if it's uh, not connected to something. Oh, come now. You've been in churches that don't have pillars in the middle. Flying buttresses, baby. Uh, yeah, but this one dips down. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, okay. I know. I know. I know. It's alien technology. Anyway, alien. Thing, exactly. But these people are not technologically advanced. I mean, they're stone knives and bearskins. Although I will say that the uh, that the, the, wh- pretty high tech. the whale harpoon that these that these rebels and in, in furs come in. At the very least, they've got some kind of crystal tip on it or something, but mm-hmm. it looks like there might be some technology in that spear, too, because there's, right. like, buttons in it and stuff. Right. Mm. And uh, when I first saw that spear tip, it's, there's red crystal in it, yeah. which at first I thought was blood, and I'm like, man, they're, they're really showing that these spears have been used. Right. And then it shows a close-up later, and you can tell that it's Yeah, it's just a red crystal. Put inside of it or something. Yeah. So know. maybe it's dilithium. They got it just sitting around. Why not use it uh, as a spearhead? But right. it's red dilithium. We normally see clear dilithium. So speaking of um, things that don't make sense, um, <laughs> Kirk Kirk fights the guy underneath the palace and and it blows up. Yeah, saying that they've blocked off the mine. Main mine, right? right. So I guess he was on the other side of it. I don't know because he just shows up for no reason to to have the big fight later or to yeah. start shooting everybody. Yeah. So apparently, what was going on is Kirk was tied his his hands bound at least wasn't tied okay. to anything. He was just had his hands bound, and right. then the other guy, only one guy apparently. Yeah, which, the guard must have stayed for some reason. Exactly. Um. He's setting a bomb that's like sitting up on like a, a, a nook inside of the uh, mine wall. And I think the intent was supposed to be he's going to set it and then just run away. And then Kirk's not going to run after him, you know, to get away from the bomb. I don't know. I don't know what the plan was, but it seemed like it was on a timer of some kind. So that so that got that the, the rebel guy apparently meant to be out of there before it went off. Uh, but then Kirk ends up fighting him and getting free. Um, yeah, so he must have been on the other side of the cave-in. Right. Magically. And then yeah. when the quote-unquote Enterprise explodes in the heavens, um, but it's not the Enterprise, what was it? Well, that's just some clever thing Scotty did. Did did, did they blow up a... Um, a couple photon torpedoes in the atmosphere right. uh, above the above the palace to simulate it. I don't know. It seems like they have options. But why? Why would he do that? Why? What, what, they're going what, to... what did it give them? Except for one panel where McCoy and Spock think that maybe the Enterprise exploded. Yeah. 
I guess. Well, it's gonna to, it's gonna let up. them it's gonna let them expose themselves, of course, and then they can you know they can uh, take demask the guy, and then Scooby can get a Scooby snack. I don't know. <laughs> right. It does seem a little elaborate. Right, and it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense why the uh, why the leaders are siding with are doing the, that in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So confused. Now, mind you, what they did there, uh, they were able to get the leader and then the white-haired uh, lady to go ahead and admit to what they did. But it's like, who cares? It's obvious what you did. Uh, getting an admission really isn't that big a deal. Right. You wouldn't yeah. think. She was definitely caught red-handed. Yeah. All right, so can we talk about the elephant in the room? The, <laughs> the real-world equivalent of what, what I think this story is trying to talk about? Oh, go go right ahead. I think they're trying to talk about uh, how the U.S. has interest in certain Middle East countries due to their sudden uh, – their their oil uh-huh. availability okay. and yeah. how should the U.S. be involved in internal politics of those countries just because the U.S. wants the oil versus what's what's best for – the countries which have, you know, a split, uh, split idea of how their country should be run. Some mm-hmm. think that it should be more traditionalist, which is uh, back to what they, how they had for thousands of years, and others think they should be more modern with, uh, with all the the luxuries that uh, the Western countries have. So, right, like Saudi Arabia or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so yeah, what do you think of, about that anal- analogy? It's been one that's been done to death. Right. Uh, the whole Dune thing. Same kind of thing. Um, the book Dune? The book Dune, yes. You know, Arrakis, the spice, allows them to travel between planets. Um, desert planet. Middle East is deserty. you know. Right, right. It's the same kind of idea of rehash. But on that in that one, did they have people that were wanting to not have the whatever the equivalent of the federation there oh well okay yes the fremen didn't want them there okay uh but the thing is there wasn't any split because in dune there was no (laughs) there was no hey let's bribe the locals no they just took over and just started my you know (laughs) grabbing the spice and you know so that end of it wasn't in it. There was no like split in the between the f- different factions within the Fremen. It was all we're just taking everything. You guys just stay underground and stay out of our way. Nice. Nice. Uh, anyways, I don't know. I thought it was a little heavy-handed in this one, but uh, yeah. But I don't know. But some people aren't as old as us, Ken. So maybe for them, it was a, it was a. A revelation. And exposed to. <laughs> and, you know, it's very fitting with Star Trek. You know, Star Trek always takes or used to take, uh, you know, racial issues or whatever and kind of turn it on its head and make yeah. you look at it a little different. So, right. Discuss the problem. It was definitely fitting in the, the theme of this could be an mm-hmm. episode of the show. Yep. Well, in some ways, well, in some it, 
in some ways, some f- bits of the theme, um, I forgot the name of the, the episode, the Taws episode, but the one where uh, the Klingons and the Federation are trying to uh, get the planet to go ahead and sign over their dilithium because uh, they have dilithium. And it turns out, you know, they're the ones that are uh, are actually advanced beings. God, it really annoys me. I can't remember the the name of this episode. It's a classic episode. Um, anyway, they turn out to be advanced beings, and then they stop the uh, Klingons and the uh, Federation from fighting because they're that advanced. What's oh, their okay. names? Uh, Andorians. They're not Andorians. No, they're Orions. The, uh, no, they're no, not Orions. Hulkins. Uh, Hulkins. <laughs> no. Indoor, no. <laughs> um. Anyway, the main point is similar kind of thing. They bring up some similar things. Hey, if we don't if we don't take the dilithium, then the uh, then the the Klingons are going to be here taking it. You know that kind of thing. Organians. Organians. That's it. The Organians. <laughs> the Organian Peace Treaty. Exactly. Right. So, right. So it's the Organians. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's. There's a little yeah, bit. Exactly. There's a little. There's a little bit of that in here. Right. Only nobody's advanced. No, they're all. They're all. They're Eskimos. They, they want to live in ice caves. Exactly. Go back so to was their this? Is this? They keep saying they're coming back. Is this from? Were these guys from an old episode? Or I don't think so. Okay, they didn't seem familiar. The only ice people I could think of were the ones where that library. The women lived in the buildings, and the men were just uh, oh, oh, it's Spock's brain. <laughs> Spock's oh, that brain, one. The, the ice, the men lived out in the ice, and the women lived in the yeah in the palace. Or there whatever. you go. I, I I really try to put that out of my memory. Trying to block that one. I'm trying, <laughs> but I don't think that this is that planet. No, I don't think so either. Okay. All right. Cool. Anything else for these two issues? Um, I thought the phaser drawings were interesting because they use a lot of phasers here. Mm-hmm. Um, in some panels they looked kind of cool and kind of accurate. In other ones, it it wasn't so accurate. Uh, so like the Federation phasers. Federation phasers. Well, I think those are the only oh, phasers. Wow. Well, the 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 blue guys have one when when they show up. And it kind of looks – theirs looks like the Federation one. I know. I, I think they're using Federation phasers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very boxy looking. Yes, very boxy looking. It looks like a, like a small block of wood with a handle stuck on it. And a little a little doohacky to be the – Doohacky. The <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A little silver doohacky on the front. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Yeah, the doohacky, sure. Exactly. Uh, anyway, that's my last comment. Yeah, the, the, these are fine so far. Just, you know, just you just have to go into it with the proper expectations. Right. So maybe they're going more for the stereotypical, uh, what, what Star Trek is now known for, for yeah. being kind of cheesy and being, you know, the woman. What are you known for? You know, when you talk to somebody that's, you know, the common misconception is that it's, you know, just space these, opera. Just and this is hitting those beats, like like not really yeah. hitting what Star Trek really was, but more of what people think of when they think of the old show. Yeah, that Kirk has to 
be with every woman that he sees, and they all want him to. Oh, of course, and, of course. And the stories are kind of cheesy and yeah. and uh, maybe not make a lot of sense, but then also somewhat relevant to an actual issue of the day. Exactly. So. So it's doing that, but it's like, you know, maybe you could go lighter on the cheese. Do, do all those same things and try to be a little less cheesy, please. Uh, we are talking about a series that had a giant amoeba and you keep Spock's bringing that brain. up. Well, and, I mean, Spock's brain, some... oh my God. <laughs> there's some bad ones out there, kid. Oh, there's some bad it ones. It wasn't all gold. No, but, you know, could we have a City on the Edge of Forever once in a while? Yeah, we need a City of the Edge of Forever t- caliber story here. Well, we got four more issues, so we'll see. It's a long series. Oh, oh! Did they go more than six? No, I'm, well, I'm just saying six is pretty long. Yeah, six ain't bad. Yeah. And then they have the second part, which is uh, Star Trek Year Four. Uh, oh, experiment or something. Yeah, right. The the Year Four experiment or whatever. Yeah, something like that. So I think that was another four or six issues. So. No. Oh, okay. Cool. It, it was obviously selling. People were buying it. Not just us. Yeah. But we're the ones that matter. Okay. Well, of course, yeah. We're the ones still talking about it 10 years later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then, uh, so with that, uh, we'll we'll be back next week. We'll, we won't finish the miniseries, but we'll do the next three issues. Excellent. Yeah, and then we're going to go be going back to Gold Key, I believe. <clears throat> right. Changing it up a little bit. We're not going to do Gold Key Theater. We're just going to old school review the gold key issues exactly uh, along with the uh, issue six of the year four yeah yeah we're uh trying to overcome some production difficulties to get that last gold key theater out but well hopefully by the time you're listening to this it's out but yeah uh, i know but still a little behind the scenes we're having some problems yeah so not to say we're not going to do gold key theater again but um, we're going to have to start making some progress on those. So we're going to do some old-fashioned uh, reviewing for some of yep, them. Yep, because we're a traditionalist. We like it the way it used to be. We don't exactly. like newfangled stuff. No, no. We want to go back to stone knives and bearskins. Exactly. Okay. Live, live in the stone. I meant ice. I don't know why I said stone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, kid. Well, thank you for uh, for uh, giving me some insight on Dune and other other properties that I'm not that aware of, <clears throat> not that familiar with. Not that I'm not aware of. Them. Yeah, yeah. Well, Donovan, there are properties that you have a wealth of knowledge in that I do not. So between the two of us, we try to cover things, and then the occasional guest star, exactly. like Brian and others. We need to bring somebody back on soon. Yes, we do. That sounds good. I'll make some calls. You do that. Shake and move. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And, of course, thank you out there for joining us on The Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, 
www.stcomicbookreview.com, subscribe to us via iTunes, or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Did you get the